0: Philippians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So if you're visiting, we've been in the book of Philippians now for a while. We're going through this book uh, pretty thoroughly. Um, Last week, by way of review, I want to go over, well, we talked just briefly last week, because if you notice, I read verse 8 again. Last week, we ended with verse 8. But last week, we looked at seven things that Paul could have counted on, but he didn't. And in those seven things were things like he was born in a great place. In those things where he was born into a great family, he was born to great wealth, he was educated, he had a high position, he had a flawless reputation. All those things Paul had, but he did not count on them. They're good things we talked about last week. They're good things that Paul could have counted on, but he didn't. So what he did, he took an assessment of his life and he took all the things that he saw that could have been in a win column. And he deliberately took them out of a win column, and he put them in a loss column. Now, what we talked about last week, all those things I just mentioned that many of us have, we didn't say they're useless. We said that Paul counted them as loss. And quite frankly, Paul actually made good use of those in his ministry. And we can too. So I didn't say they were useless. I just said we need to count them. Has lost One of the main points we made last week is that for most of us it isn't bad things that keep us from Jesus, but it's good things that keep us from Jesus. It's good things that we count on that we shouldn't count on. So that was the question last week, and I asked you, if you were here, what are you counting on? Like, take an assessment of, life, of your life, and I hope you did that throughout the week. Take an assessment of your life and ask yourself, what what am I counting on really? So this week, I wanna dovetail off of that question. I wanna ask this question, what are you trying to win? Or what are you trying to gain? Would be another way to ask the question. It's like in our world, we're surrounded by people trying to win. This room is full of people Trying to win. The question is, what are we trying to win? We're trying to win the most stuff. We're trying to win the most power. We're trying to win the most influence. We're trying to win the most freedom. What is it that you're trying to win? Here's what I believe. So, without a doubt, I believe God put a desire into every one of us, and He put that desire to win. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that we have a desire uh, to win. Here's the problem, is that most of us are trying to win the wrong things. Or even win at the wrong things. That's what we're going to evaluate here today. Um, so it's kind of in our nature to lie to ourselves. Do you guys know that? I don't know if you've ever done that i you a, give you a minor example of how this works. So it's in our nature to lie to ourselves. So somehow, one way this will manifest itself is like for men and women. Imagine men and women. So men will look in the mirror and they will lie to themselves, right? They will see everything that's right. It's kind of how men work. Now women, on the other hand, will look in the mirror and they will lie to themselves also, but they will see everything that's wrong. But we do lie to ourselves. That's just an example. We, we, what we do is we manipulate, as people, we manipulate our own thinking to feel better about ourselves. Okay? That is why in our society right now, we look at participation trophies as legitimate achievements. Fair? Like that's where we are. And here's the deal with Paul. Paul looked at Jesus, and he saw Jesus for who he was. And based off of how he saw Jesus, that's how he saw everything else. And he saw it for what it was. Now, I'm going to use an illustration here this morning, okay? One of the first times I've ever done this, so um, bear with me. So what we have here is something nice. Can everybody see that or at least pretend to see that? If not, I'll explain. Don't worry. Um, so you might like immediately conclude like, is that a cow patty on the stage right there? There's no possible way that I'm in church and there's a huge cow patty on the stage. Well, if you're visiting with us today, welcome to the Ozarks. Um, <laughs> This is indeed a big hunk of cow poo. Um, but Stay with me. (laughs) Here's what this really is for today. This is actually a picture, a more realistic picture of the kingdoms that we try to build. And I would even go so far as to say this is actually a more realistic picture of American Christianity. But since we're good at deceiving ourselves, here's what we do, right? This is actually what most of us are trying to win. But we deceive ourselves with accessories. Like, this is what we're after if we're honest. But well, here's what we do. See, we we douse this with some church attendance. See that? Because you, you can't quite really see what we're doing now for what it really is. Because we douse it with some church attendance. And then, of course, we, we want to make sure we sprinkle in our uh, conservative beliefs. Because those are really... Super important for the kingdoms that we're trying to build. And of course, a thorough layer of some good Midwestern family values. And this is what we're trying to win. And I already know some of you are like turning the page already. You're like... That is so inappropriate. (laughs) Like poop. (laughs) Go back with me to Philippians. Back to verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as scubalon is the word. Some of your Bibles say rubbish. I think some versions may say table scraps. Some versions, if you go old enough, actually use the word dung. But the literal word that Paul uses there is animal excrement. So I didn't just think, hey, you know what? I'd love to use cow poop as an illustration at church one day. Paul did it first. I'm just following his lead. <laughs> Paul says, "I took an assessment, and here's what I found out: Everything compared to Christ is crap. And he says, "And I, and I made that assessment. Why? That I may gain Christ, or another word, is that I may win." Christ now what's Paul talking about right there because obviously Paul's a believer so he's not talking about salvation he's not saying I'm going to count it this way so that I can get salvation like he's already a believer he's already said he's writing this letter to people who are already saved he's saying in order that I may gain Christ and here's what he's saying this is what that means in order that I can be all that Christ wants me to be Here's another way to word that. Paul says, I'm going to count everything as dung because I'm not interested in a participation trophy. If you look at Paul's life, he was not interested in just participating. He's interested in more than that. Paul refused to settle for what was on the plate. Paul says, I want to win. And I want to win Jesus. Jesus. And Paul goes on. You know the theme, if you remember last week, I'd always be like, I'd, I'd say, here's what Paul's trying to teach. And I'd be like, and then Paul goes on. Like That's what he does. You think, he throws this huge haymaker. He could drop the mic and leave. But it's like, Paul's always just, I'm going to go on. So he doesn't even stop right there. He doesn't say, hey, I want to win. I want to win Christ. He goes on. He says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that's which comes through faith. So what's he saying right there? He's saying... Like we're going to see Jesus one day. You're going to see Jesus one day. I'm going to see Jesus one day. That's undeniable. And here's the word that is so taboo in our culture right now. Not only are you going to see Jesus, you are going to be judged. And I'm going to be judged. And one of the things Paul's saying right here is you're going to be judged on how you think you got your righteousness. You're going to be judged on what you think it is that makes you right when you're standing before that judge. Paul says, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him, not with the righteousness of my own. And here's the reality for many of us in this room day after day, year after year. You believe you can white knuckle Christianity and if you do this thing good enough and hard enough and grit your teeth enough, Jesus is going to just love you. Because you just did it. Some of you have some sin like in your past. And the way you think you're going to get your righteousness is that you think, well, if I feel bad enough about it for long enough, if I can make myself suffer for my own sins long enough, then I will have paid for my sin. And eventually I can start feeling good about this mistake I made in my past. That's our way of thinking. And that's us deceiving ourselves. And maybe you've sat with some people that said, No, listen, God forgives you. You've got to move past that. I want to take it a little bit further, because for some of you, that language, which is true, it's not working. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to do some tough love with you right now. I want to tell you the fact that you think you can punish yourself and feel bad enough for long enough and eventually have suffered enough for your sin is sin. And you're choosing to live in sin. It's actually pride in you thinking that you can attain your own righteousness. And you're diminishing the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's sin. And Jesus came to crush that way of thinking. Righteousness, Paul says in verse 9, is gained by faith. Righteousness is not gained by performance. And some of you are living in the lie that your latest religious performance is is what God is going to look and base your righteousness from. And it's sin. Paul says. I count everything as crap. In order to gain Christ. He says I count everything as crap in order to be found in Christ. I do not have a righteousness of my own. I have a righteousness from Christ. It's very passionate. And just so you know that idea of Paul saying, hey, I count everything as dung. That's pretty strong language. You don't see that word or that language anywhere else in the Old Testament in its literal form. I don't know that I subscribe to this, but I do want to let you know some theologians who study that language say it's actually a bad word that he wouldn't want to use again. But that's how serious he was. So, so why does Paul come to these conclusions? Like how or why would he use such strong language and come to these conclusions? And here's what I would say. Because winning mattered to Paul. Go to verse 10. We'll read it again. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And share in his sufferings. That I may become like him. Even unto death. And here's what I'll tell you about Paul. This was the passion of his life. Because we look at Paul, right? He's the ultimate missionary. We think, man, Paul, evangelism was the passion of his life. He, his passion of his life was to share Jesus. It wasn't the passion of his life. The passion of Paul's life was to know Jesus. He wanted to know Jesus and he did know Jesus. And when you know Jesus the way that Paul knew Jesus, subsequently you're going to be a phenomenal evangelist. You're going to talk to people about Jesus if you know Jesus the way Paul knew Jesus. So my question is, do you know Jesus. I'm going to ask it one more time and I'm going to let it sit. Do you know Jesus? Well, I got saved when I was five. I got baptized when I was one. Wasn't the question. The question was, do you know Jesus? Now, just before we think that we know Jesus, we're going to, go to the, we're going to go to another passage in the Bible. We're going to see exactly what Paul was talking about when he says that I may know him. That passage is in Matthew chapter 1. I'll give you some context. So Joseph and Mary, they're engaged. right? Joseph and Mary, Jesus' dad and mom. Yes, that Joseph and Mary, they're engaged. Mary's pregnant. Right? Here's the problem. They never slept together. So Joseph is a little tripped out right now. I'm not exactly sure what's going on, but he's a good guy, Um, and he's trying to draw some conclusions. Like, what am I supposed to do here? I've got, my fiance's pregnant. I've never slept with her. How about, okay, here's the deal. I'll just, let me just quietly step away from this so that she's not shamed. I don't even know what to do. He's wrestling with all these things, right? And then here's what happened. He goes to sleep, and he has a dream. And it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him, said, Hey, Joseph, son of David, don't worry about this. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You guys know the story there. Says she's going to bear a son. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And verse 24 says, When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife. Now here's the phrase, verse 25. So he took his wife Mary but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. But knew her not means they didn't sleep together. It means Joseph did not have sex with Mary until after she gave birth to Jesus. Knew her not. The word used right there is the exact same word that Paul uses when he says that I may know him. So let me ask you again. Do you know Jesus? Like, do you intimately know him and treasure him above everything? Before you answer. Let's just keep asking some questions. Like when's the last time that you and God were alone together? Just you and God. Like when's the last time just you and this book were just alone together? And you sitting and listening to what God had to say to you. And you talking to God in prayer. And you and God just being together intimately. Where you get to know each other. And I, and I got to share this with you guys. Because here's the deal. I, I'm, this week has been the heaviest week. Maybe uh, one of the heaviest weeks of my life studying this. i heavily convicted. I continue to be heavily convicted. And here's the deal. Before you go concluding like, oh great, we had another pastor telling us to get in the Bible. Like that's all, that's all he has. That's all he does, right? He's got all this time. Um, here's some transparency because I, we, want, we want to model transparency. We believe in that. We believe in just being honest around here. So since we started Hill City Church, So we're almost a year old. So just so you know, just since we started Hill City Church, me, pastor of this church, I have spent less time alone and intimately with God than I have in the last 12 years of my life. So I'm not standing up here like, get in the Bible, get alone with God, you guys should do this. I'm sitting here going, boom, 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 all week. Just me, God, alone. Just me sitting there waiting to hear from him. Me talking to him. It's happened less in the last year than it has in the last 12 years of my life. Alone. Because here's the reality for some of us a lot of you have been going to Bible studies with groups for years, you've been coming to church for years. Look around you, this room's packed. year after year after year, and you still don't know God. So, a little story I'll continue to tell on myself, just because I, don't, I might as well. Um, so, Jenny and I have four kids, um, sometimes uh, referred to as the four monsters. Um, our life is crazy. Right, so just a conversation I just had this week as I'm driving in the minivan with the whole family and, and, and all four kids. Um, I'm driving and it's loud and kids are sword fighting and one kid's singing and I just kind of looked over at Jenny and I'm like, if I just open this door and fall out, are you still athletic enough to get to this seat to save everybody <laughs> because I can't take this anymore today? Um, that's our life. I just summed up our life. All that to be said, my wife and I need to go on dates, right? So do you and your wife, but my wife and I very rarely get time alone. So I'm like, I'm going to be super intentional. I'm going to start taking my wife on dates, so... One of the first times I got intentional about taking my wife on dates, we're driving around trying to figure out where to go eat. But in reality, I'm looking for the restaurant. I don't care, which I can't find it anywhere. But we're trying to figure out where to eat. And I'm asking, like, where do you want to eat? And she doesn't care. And I'm just like, okay, but we're alone and this is good. And then actually a buddy of mine, is in this room right now, he calls. Like, hey, we're down at Maria's downtown. I'm like, be there in five minutes. And next thing you know, we're downtown and we're eating. And it's me and Jenny and another couple. we had a great time. It was awesome. But I learned something. Like that date didn't count. A date didn't count. It didn't count for me. I didn't get any time with my wife. I need that. It didn't count for my wife. She did any time with me. She needs that. But we weren't alone. Is there value in going out with people? Yes. But there's value in being alone. And I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? And if you do, have you been alone with him? Just you and him. You know, do you know the power of his resurrection, of his resurrection as, as Paul says? For some of you to experience the power of God by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, like that's a foreign thing. I just said that, and you're like, I don't even know what you just said. But to experience the power of God by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you have no idea what that is. You are numb to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you don't know the power of His resurrection. Because Romans 8.11 tells us a little bit about the resurrection and the Spirit. It says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, and that Spirit dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead has also give, give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So could we conclude that because we don't know Him intimately, we don't spend time with Him, could we conclude that we don't know His power? And if we don't know Him and we don't know His power, There's no way we're going to share in his sufferings, which Paul goes to next. So Paul just doesn't want to know him. He just doesn't want to share in the power of resurrection. He says, I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him, becoming like him in his death. When you truly know Christ intimately, here's the deal. This is big. When you truly know Christ intimately, you get into an elite club. You know what that club is? The fellowship of his Suffering. So, what are his sufferings? Well, I read that. I don't even know what you're talking about. What are his sufferings? Well, you can go back. We talked about this in Philippians chapter 2. I'll just read it, but we've taught on this before. Here are Christ's sufferings. Go back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 8. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. So his sufferings are this, a sacrificial, humble, obedient servant. Is that you? Like, are you in humility, ready to obey God, go wherever he tells you to go, and do it even if it costs you everything. So I want to talk to you for a minute about a window of obedience. Because, because here's what I'm getting ready to do. I'm getting ready to tell some of you the story of your past. I'm getting ready to tell some of you the story of the present. And I'm getting ready to tell the story of some of your future. It's called the window of obedience. And here's the deal. God has called you to something. Like you know it. It's It's undeniable. here's what happens. A pretty little girl comes along. Or a handsome young man comes along and you get a glimpse of a dream. Dream. And now all of a sudden this thing God called you to, you know he called you to, you're like okay, wait a minute here. And then this window of obedience gets smaller. And it gets smaller. And it gets smaller. And next thing you know, you don't go where God called you and you follow this dream for some of you God called you to something you know it you know what it is and you're headed in that direction but there's a little hiccup or there's a little hardship and you're following the Lord and you just get a little hiccup and you're like nope that was too hard I'm out apparently God doesn't want me to do that When the Bible clearly tells us that there are going to be tests and trials and that they shouldn't surprise you. And maybe, just maybe, God has seen if you're really interested in following and obeying Him. And for some of you, God has called you to something and you know it. And this one may be the saddest one of all. God's called you to something, you know it. And church people talk you out of it. I've seen it over and over again. So here we are, Hill City. New church, energetic, young, vibrant. bunch of people dumping money in 401Ks. That's a good thing. The problem is we're dumping them in because in our, in our uh, future, we're looking for a life of ease. A bunch of us going into d- debt Buying a bunch of crap that doesn't have anything to do with anything. But we go to church. We have a great family. Oh, and you know what? Here's, And we do ministry. And there's our cherry that we put on top of our big pile. Can you imagine going before the Lord? Here's the crown I have to lay at your feet. And that's going to be so many of us. Bread. That's Paul, man. Like, he wrote almost all the Bible. Like, Jesus, he was the son of God. Like, that's not even fair. I mean, here's the thing. The Bible doesn't even allow you to have that argument. The Bible is a book about very below average people. You know that? Very below average people that decided, you know what? I'm going to obey God no matter what it costs unskilled. It's funny, even in this book, there's a guy that we kind of skipped over. He's insignificant, but he seems insignificant. His name is Epaphroditus. Know him? Read a book about Epaphroditus lately? I can't be held responsible if I refer to him as Afro from here on out because his name's kind of hard to say. But you can read about him in Philippians chapter 2. It's very interesting. It's very little blurb about him. Just an insignificant nobody that Paul decides he's going to write about. In chapter 2, verse 25, I'm going to just give you the context. So the Philippian church sends him to Paul to care for Paul. This guy, like, look around, like, who could be expendable? Like, no, this guy's too awesome at worship. We can't send him to go serve somebody. What about, okay, no, 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 she's great at kids. We need to keep her here. Oh, you, you go serve Paul. You're expendable. That's kind of a right? Well, he goes to Paul and he gets sick and he almost dies while serving Paul. In verse 30, it says he almost died for Christ. Paul said he almost died for Christ, giving me help that you couldn't give me. The actual word, let me turn back and see what the actual word is. It says, verse 34, he nearly died for the work of Christ Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That word risking his life, it means to wager or to gamble. To wager or to gamble. Why would he do that? Why would any human being wager or risk their life? And I would charge you that Epaphroditus concluded that Jesus was worth it. Like he was not interested in a participation trophy. I would almost conclude even that when Paul wrote earlier, to live is Christ and to die is gain, that those words came out of his mouth to Epaphroditus while he was on his deathbed before he ever wrote them to the church in Philippi. Think, oh, there you go again. You used a Bible guy again. I mean, I know I never heard of him, but he's still in the Bible. Okay. All you got to do is read history. All throughout history, we see example after example of believers who were riskers, who said, I'm not settling for that. I know God has more. First and second century group of people. They went out and they would go all over these villages, especially, I think Africa is where they spent most of their time. They'd go to prisons. They'd go to places where people were diseased. I think the plague was a big deal then. And they would just literally go from house to house and village to village and serving and helping people who could literally kill them with the diseases that they had. But God told them to do it, so they did it. So my question is, what has a risk for the work of Christ looked like in your life? And I'm not saying you got to go try to die. But what have you done for Christ that people could look at and go, dude, you're kind of crazy. Like, I would never do that. Because it's going on right here. It's going on at Hill City, like right now. And I know you. Th- I'm not. I'm not talking about guys jumping off mountains to save things. I'm not talking about weird like suicide missions. For some of you, it's as simple. You got new believers, right? For some of you, it's as simple as you're doing something like you're going to get baptized on Easter, and your family's like, "Why in the heck would you do that? Like you did that when you were four, and they're trying to talk you out of it." Or some, some of your family's like, I don't even know why you're doing that for. I can't believe you're buying it. Are, you are you in a cult or something? And it's costing you some family relationships. There are people in this room right now that are changing jobs because that's what God's called them to do. And I'm not talking like changing jobs laterally. Like, I'm talking about people leaving big time jobs and they're taking jobs because that's what the Lord has asked them to do. And people look at them, they're family members and their friends, they're going, You're an idiot. Why would you do that? There are people in our congregation that have written checks, like significant checks. And I guarantee you, if their friends saw that they wrote that check, they'd look at them and go, You are a fool. Why would you? That's all that church wants is your money. Why would you do something like that? And the only question we have to ask, hey, what are you trying to win? What are you trying to win? We've got a couple in our church. Retired. 40 years in ministry. 40 years pastoring people. 40 years I spent pastoring people. They literally pastored thousands of people. Married people, disciple people, council people. 40 years, they're retired. Like, go golfing, man. You did your, like, you've kept the faith. You've ran your race. Go golfing. Go to the beach. That's not what they do. Dr. Hardwick and Michelle, their, their health isn't great. They'll tell you that. His health isn't great. He's got, so he's got dietary restrictions to travel places that, to, to survive on what they eat. It's not, not even possible. Michelle's health isn't great. But you know what they do? Year after year, they travel all over the world, and they go to these countries, and they train pastors, and they teach women the Bible. Why? Why would you do that? Because I made a conscious decision to know him. I made a conscious decision. I want to share in his sufferings. So there was a missionary. C.T. Studd, we've quoted him here before, but he's the guy that made the quote, hey, some want to live within a sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He was a wealthy English athlete, and I was hesitant to tell you this story just because I know how missions can get romanticized a little bit, and and I hesitate to do that, but at the same time, I don't want to unintentionally lead the congregation of Hill City to spend year after year just polishing turds. He spent his life in China, spent his life in India, and he came home, and he's like, okay, year after year in China and India, grinding it out, and it was time for him to retire. And you know what he did? He looked, he said, wait a minute, Africa, like it's the most under evangelized place on the planet. I gotta go. And the church said, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. You've done enough. one theologian says Christianity that costs nothing produces the same like want a fellowship in his sufferings following Christ should cost us something like it should cost us some relationships Like it should cost us our schedule maybe at the very least. Following Christ should cost us some awkward conversations with many, that many of us are unwilling to have. Well, when it comes to actually living for Christ and sharing Christ, I, I just want to take like this organically missional, intentional, relational, Christocentrical, relevant fellowshipping approach. Great. Do me a favor. Talk about Jesus just once. But we want to use all the buzzwords, pretend like we're super strategic, and we go two, three years with somebody, we never once mention Jesus because we're afraid to have an awkward conversation. Like, what are you trying to win? What are you trying to gain? I'll just ask another question that the Bible asks. What does it profit a man or woman? I'm about to kick something over back here. What does it profit a man or woman to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So, Hill City, here we are. We're 10 months old, almost a year. Great gatherings, great kids' programming, great music. But what are we doing? What are we trying to win? Like I can't lead. I can't be a leader of a church that hundreds of people go before the Lord with this. I can't do it. I can't lay my head on my pillow at night and be okay with pretending that it's all good. It's going to look different. It's going to look different for a lot of us. Right? I don't, I don't think any of us are going to quit our job, go sell everything, everything we have, quit everything that we've ever committed to, and say, I'm leaving, I'm going to Africa. It's probably not going to happen to most of us. Now, it might happen to somebody in here. It's probably going to happen to most of us. For some of you, here's what it's going to look like. You know what you need to do? You just need to go on a mission trip to Haiti with us in the summer. Like, sacrifice one week of your life, just even know what it's like to sacrifice something. Go on a mission trip, see things that you've never seen before. That's what it's going to look like for some of you. Some of you, you need to quit being paralyzed by fear. you've got to move on what God's called you to do. You know God's called you to do something. You know it. And you're listening to every other voice except for His, and your window of obedience is getting smaller. And it's, getting smaller and it's getting smaller. It's getting smaller. What is that? It could be baptism for some of you. That could be making a disciple. You know, God's called you to that. Some of you need to adopt a baby. And you're scared and you're listening to every voice except for God's voice. And you know that's what he wants you to do. Side note, I can tell you from experience, church people try to talk you out of that. Some of you need to grab a Bible for the first time in however many years, and you just sit down and you need to be alone with God. I don't even know what that feels like again. Some of you need to, for the first time in your life, actually pass from death to life and become a real Christ follower. And I don't care if you've been coming here for a year, I don't care if you've been going to church for 30 years, I don't care if you've been in the same small group for 30 years. Like you don't know Jesus and you never have. What are you trying to win? We're going to receive communion. Um, here's my fear. So we do communion, if you're visiting, we do communion here every week. So I'm, I'm talking to people that come here week after week. If you're visiting, I'm not talking to you, per se. Here's my fear, Hill City. We do, we do communion every week. Is it, is it just this thing, right? Just this kind of religious ritual? Like, what are you trying to gain? What are you trying to win? I want you today as you take communion, I want you, th- I want you to think about that as you are receiving communion. What am I trying to win? Can we please not let what we do with communion just become this vain repetition thing that loses its meaning? Like, can we focus on Jesus? That's what Paul wanted. He wanted to know him, he wanted to win him. Let's pray.